All right, let's go Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that part of our time together. If you don't have a, a copy of God's Word that you can call your very own, we actually enjoy giving Bibles away around here. We actually like giving them away even more than coffee cups. I know that's hard to believe. Uh, but we, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in and around and about your life to be shaped by knowing Him, defined by knowing Him, evaluated through the lens of knowing Him. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your very own, I can fix that uh, before you leave here today. Uh, we, we think that God will use it in a big way. Uh, Luke 24. Uh, so he, we have spent our time together uh, over this last period of time that we call Holy Week, uh, kind of focusing our attention on a singular version of this story. We've been focusing our attention, narrowing our attention on Luke's account of, of everything that went on during uh, this week. And, and we kicked things off last Sunday in this room uh, by climbing what I think was our biggest mountain to climb. Uh, we, we looked at everything that happened between uh, what's called the triumphal entry all the way through uh, probably Thursday afternoon sometime. Uh, Jesus is in and out of the temple uh, complex and all that kind of stuff. And, and we discovered uh, in our time last Sunday that, that Jesus doesn't merely show up to Jerusalem with some kind of vague idea of what needs to, to happen. He's, he's not kind of rolling the dice and, and just trying to figure out how the best way Way to play this thing out is going to be. Uh, no, he gets to town and he immediately asserts himself as the promised messianic king of the Jews. Right? That's his MO. That's, that's exactly what he does. He rides into town on the colt of a donkey. Right? That's a story that if you have much of a church background, you're probably likely incredibly familiar with. Maybe you've heard it preached a thousand times over a thousand Palm Sundays. Right? And so uh, it, 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 Jesus rides into the town on the colt of a donkey. And, and so what's so special about that? Well, what's special is that it's a coronation parade. It's a coronation parade. Uh, the prophet Zechariah prophesied about five and a half centuries before that moment that that was exactly how Israel's great redeemer was going to make it into town. Jesus knew that. His followers knew that. The crowd knew that. And so that's exactly how it plays out for Jesus. Jesus rides into the town with the, with the intentional expression of, here I finally am. Aren't you glad to see me? And he heads straight for the temple. The epicenter of Jewish life and belief. And, and when he gets there, he doesn't ooh and all like everybody else does. No, he flips over tables and runs everybody out. <laughs> makes, a, makes a whip and gets angry about some things. Doesn't go on and on and on about how nice the the temple looks and how the temple authorities have taken care of the place. He drives everybody out of the place. And he makes the authorities look foolish and declares that the whole thing is coming down soon. In other words, Jesus intentionally picks a fight with those who have the power and the authority to kill him. What we believe about the cross is no accident. Jesus is not the victim of a bunch of unfortunate circumstances outside of his control. No, he is the perpetrator of an intentional moment that can only ever play out one way. Jesus came to die. 
Fast forward to a couple nights ago, Friday evening, we read the next piece of that story. Luke chapters 22 and 23, Jesus celebrates the the Passover with his followers, institutes a new ritual. We call it the the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says that the the bread that is broken and the wine that they drank was to, to carry a much bigger symbolic reality for them. It was to point them to something massive that was about to happen. And so just a few hours after he said those words, they watched it play out in real life as Jesus is arrested and he is beaten and he is ultimately hanged and crucified crucified at the hands of the Romans. The the one who came to die did exactly what he came to do. He died. He got the fight he was gunning for. Why? Because a sin debt was owed and Jesus came for the express purpose of paying it. Every single drop of the wrath that is rightly owed to us for our sin was soaked up in that moment by the one who laid his own life down. And he did it so that we might be reconciled forever to him. But it's Easter, right? We're we're past that. Jesus, his body is taken down from the cross. He's stowed away in a in a borrowed tomb so that his followers can come back later on after the Sabbath and prepare his body the right way. They were in a hurry. They had to get it done before sundown, so they kind of wrapped him quickly and placed, placed him in a tomb that didn't belong to him and with the intent of coming back later to, to do it the right way. And, and that's where we left things Friday night this, with a story that was begging for resolution, right? Begging for a happily ever after. Hey, does Saturday seem longer for anybody else than normal? Is that just me? Okay, maybe just me. So this morning we gathered outside in the cold, um, and we got to celebrate what I, what I think is the most amazing resolution of a story in existence. We looked at the entirety of Luke chapter 24. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Angels are asking why, uh, why they're wasting their time waiting where dead people hang out. They should be looking for Jesus where living people hang out. Right? And so it's this massive story. If you want to find Jesus, you need to be looking where living people hang out. Seems obvious to me. And so, 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 so what now, though? Like, we cover the whole story. Our, our aim was to look at all of Luke's account. We kind of cover that out there. So what now? Well, I want to focus our, t- our time this morning, focus our attention during this time by zeroing in on one piece of that larger story that we looked at, that we already read. A piece that, if you've been doing the church thing for a while, I'm just going to go ahead and guess you fly right past because you know what it means. Or at least that's what happens in my heart a lot of the time. Like we've been saying all week, I, I, really, think, I, I really think that we tend to miss some absolutely massive realities in these stories that if we would just slow down and pay careful attention, it would blow us away. So, we're going to do that this morning. I mean, we got special things going on, right? Like, this, has anybody heard that this is a special day? <laughs> some of y'all are wearing ties. I've never seen you in a tie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more special for some people. (laughs) 
I want to take a, a closer look at a story that I think will help set the right tone for mornings like this one. We got we got special things on the calendar. We we got people who are dressed up to the nines. It's it's a bigger than normal celebration. So I think a fair question to to ask is is what we're doing here this morning. If it, is all the the pomp and circumstance that we're throwing at this affair is it actually worthy of what we're celebrating? And I think the answer is absolutely emphatically yes. Um. But it might be smarter to let our text for the morning dictate the terms. So you ready to go? Luke 24, we're going to start in verse 13. Luke 24, starting in verse 13, Luke says this, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So let's call time out there. Okay, so we're told that, that later in the day, on that resurrection Sunday, that very first Sunday out of the tomb, that a couple of Jesus' followers are walking from Jerusalem to a little tiny village called Emmaus. And, and there are a couple of things to, to, to point out, a uh, uh, couple of things of note to point out about that reality. One is that we're pretty sure that neither of these guys are one of the original 12, one of the original 12 disciples. One, because Judas is gone now, and so you're, you're not going to hear them referred to as the 11. Uh, we're going to learn in a moment that one of them is named Cleopas, all right? Uh, so that's not one of the disciples. Uh, and then later on in verse 33, they go to the 11 to, to give their report, and so we're pretty certain that the one that's not named, that's left unnamed, isn't one of the 11 either. And uh, so our best guess is that these two guys are a part of a larger following of Jesus, uh, probably the 70 disciples that are mentioned in Luke chapter 10. Right? And so Jesus had the 12, but he also had these other groups that kind of followed him around and were, uh, were, were at different levels of dedication in their following. And so uh, we think that probably these two are, are numbered out of the 70. Right? But either way, we got Cleopas and some unnamed guy, his buddy. By the way, if you're having a child soon, highly consider the name Cleopas. I mean, it's a strong biblical name. Why would you think otherwise? Whatever would be wrong with it. The second thing to note that we need to pay attention to um, is we're not totally sure where the village of Emmaus is. All right? uh, we, we, we can't really point to any kind of archaeological find that, that says this is where Emmaus is. All right? And so uh, there were lots of little villages around uh, the city of Jerusalem. We, we actually looked at one of them last week with Bethpage. We're not sure where Bethpage is either. All right? And so uh, Jesus starts his uh, descent into Jerusalem from Bethpage. And so we got the, an idea because of the mountain that it talks about. And so the same is true with, uh, with Emmaus. Luke tells us all right, uh, that it's about seven miles from the city. All right, so it's a bit of a hike, but it's not like some cross-country adventure. Uh, it's just down the road a bit. All right, so they're, they're walking back to the village of Emmaus. But, but picture yourself in their shoes for a moment, right? Like, what's going through your head in that, on that walk? Imagine how dejected they probably felt. They, they spent however long following Jesus around. He's been preaching with authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. He's been, he's been working miracles. Just a week ago, he rode victoriously into town as, as a king, just like the prophets of old had said, right? You watched him stare down the, the unworthy religious leaders and put them in their place. You had some fun flipping over some tables last week. Probably a grand old time. Everything was going great until... It very much wasn't going great anymore. They went 
from devoting everything in their lives to following the one that they thought was the promised Messiah to watching him be arrested and beaten and publicly executed in one of the most grotesque ways ever imagined. We, we saw that Friday night, right? Jesus was shredded to pieces and nailed to a stake in the ground and left to suffocate. Not exactly a fairy tale ending. Things were pretty awesome for a while, sure, but it kind of fell apart real fast. It's pure speculation on my part, I get that. But I kind of get the impression here that, that these two Jesus followers are now headed home with their tails tucked between their legs. That's the tone that, I, uh, that I'm reading into this story, and I, I think it's fair. And Luke tells us that they're talking about everything that had happened the last week. They're having the if-only conversation. Have you ever had an if-only conversation? If only this had happened. If only that had happened. Things would be way different, right? The tone here, I think, is confusion and frustration. They're not, what, they're not sure what to think. They're not sure who to believe. They're going home. And then verse 15 happens. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. The one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? All right, call time out there. All right, so verse 15 adds some flavor, right? Uh, we're told that they're talking and discussing. Right? Uh, discussing is not a bad translation of that word. Uh, the problem is, it's not a good translation of that, of that word either. The Greek there for the word discussing is really uh, more likely translated as disputing or arguing. So they're kind of arguing back and forth amongst themselves. This has become a little bit of a, of a chippy moment between these two guys. And then out of nowhere, a resurrected Jesus shows up and he wants to be all chatty about things. Right? What you talking about, boys? We're also told that, that they're kept from recognizing him. I don't know how Jesus just shows up there. Jesus can do what he wants to do. But Jesus shows up. We're told that they're kept from recognizing him. Jesus, I guess, wants to take an indirect route with these boys. He asks them what they've been talking about, and their response to Jesus is pretty much, how do you not know what's going on? Where have you been? The entire city is talking about what has happened this last weekend, but Jesus continues to play coy with them. What things? You ever ask your kids a leading question so you get them to, to fess up to something and tell them what you, they're actually thinking? Yeah, Jesus is really good at that game. Look at how they respond in verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So what you talking about? 
you know the news about Jesus, right? In fact, they, they seem kind of frustrated that they have to spell it out for this stranger. And they go on to call Jesus a prophet, mighty in deed and word. And so, so let's talk about that. Th- those things aren't untrue about Jesus. They're, they're certainly true about Jesus. He did act as a prophet. He was mighty in both deed and word. But at the same time, does anybody think that that's all that he is? Yeah, it's wholly insufficient to use those as the only descriptors of, of who Jesus is. And, and, and think about it for a second. That's kind of explainable considering where they're at. What are they doing right now? If they're walking home with the tails between their legs, they're having serious doubts about everything they saw. They're having serious doubts about everything they had heard. And we see that in verse 21, right? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So, so what does that tell us? It tells us that even this deep into the story, we still see a gross misunderstanding of who they expected the Messiah to be. A gross misunderstanding. Despite the Old Testament continually promising this reality, despite Jesus himself continually telling them that this was going to happen, that this was how it's all going to play out, they continued to cling to the idea that they needed saving from some external force enslaving them more than they needed salvation from an internal enslavement of their own indwelling sin and rebellion against God. See, when your greatest messianic hope is to have some redeemer rise up and put Rome in its place. When your greatest messianic hope is to stick it to those in power so that you can be in charge for a little while, the public execution of your supposed Messiah tends to dash your hopes to pieces. Right? It tends to shatter your hope entirely. And we could step away from Cleopas and his buddy for a moment. I... I really think this is true of our own hearts as well. I don't think they're the only ones guilty of this. We, when we fail to see our need correctly, when we get that initial assessment of our true problem wrong, we will always, and I mean always, turn to lesser things and turn them into functional saviors. Always. Whether it's stuff like your family or your career, or maybe it's some hobby you're really invested in. Maybe, maybe it's you try to be your own savior. It's your work ethic. It's your willpower that's eventually going to get things done. Sometimes, ooh, sometimes we're even way more audacious than that, and we're, we, we actually recast Jesus into the savior that we would rather him be. So Jesus is the one that's going to be the one that, I, that gives me what I truly want. Jesus will be the one that makes me happy and healthy and successful. Jesus will be the one that finally turns this country around and gets us back on track. See, Cleopas and his boy have no category at all for a crucified Messiah because Cleopas and his boy failed to understand that Rome wasn't their biggest problem. Rome wasn't their biggest problem. So here they are. Walking home to Emmaus, tails tucked firmly between their legs, believing that they had wasted the last week. Following a wannabe savior who couldn't deliver the goods. 
reality is that Jesus is a much better Savior than they were able to comprehend in that moment. A far better Savior. Firstly, because it was precisely through Jesus' death that he accomplished something far greater than being freed from Roman occupation could ever mean. Despite whatever pathetic trophies they were hoping to win from their imaginary Messiah, Jesus came to give them an eternally valuable prize. He came to reconcile them forever to himself. And so listen, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I did the Jesus thing, it didn't work for me. I think you're more like Cleopas than you know. I think you're a lot more like Cleopas than you know. You you didn't try the Jesus thing. What you did was fail at using Jesus as a means to some other lesser end. Those are not the same thing. Jesus' resume is a sufficient savior. It, It goes a lot further even than just paying the debt of our sin. There's another massive reason why Jesus is a better savior than Cleopas and his buddy can make sense of right now. It's because the Jesus that died a few days ago is currently standing there talking to them. We're going to act like that's a big deal. Right? He's having a conversation with them on the side of the road at the moment. They don't know it's him yet, but the story's about to get a little better. Jesus continues playing coy with them. He continues letting them talk. In verse 22, they say this. Where's my spot? There's my spot. All right. No, that's not it either. There's my spot. All right. Big old font. I can't even find it. I'm getting old. All right. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with them, uh, with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. All right, call time out there. So, so not only are their hopes dashed to pieces by Jesus' death, but now, now the tomb is empty, and we got a problem, right? Like, what happened to Jesus? And so there's even more confusion swirling around. And and so I referenced a moment ago, if you don't know the story, Jesus' body was taken down from the cross after he died. He was quickly wrapped up and placed in this borrowed tomb, this brand new borrowed tomb that had been cut out of some rock. And and they did it in a hurry because the Sabbath day was quickly approaching and you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath day, right? And so the idea was that they would come back after the Sabbath day was over and prepare his body the right way for burial. Now, the Sabbath technically ended at sundown Saturday night, all right? Uh, And so there's all this time in between, but for whatever reason, uh, we see that the women waited until Sunday morning at sunrise to head to the tomb. But when they finally got there, they discovered a little problem. Jesus isn't there. Minor detail, right? The stone had been rolled away. They're supposedly greeted by some angels who tell them that Jesus is alive again. And we're told that the women run back to tell everybody else what had happened. As a side note, this is one of the best proofs for the veracity of the resurrection accounts. Women were the first ones to witness the empty tomb. In all three of the prevailing cultures involved in this story, Roman, Greek, and Jewish, not a single one of them would have valued this woman's testimony. Not a one of them. They would have immediately rejected the testimony of a woman during this time and age. If you're going to fabricate a story in this part of the world, during this part of history, you don't willingly cripple your story by making it dependent upon the testimony of a woman. You don't do that. It's unwise. 
a first century audience reading Luke's account would go, please, you expect me to believe this nonsense? Now you can believe whatever you want about the chauvinism of those cultures in that time period, but what you cannot do is point to realities like that and go, see, it was made up. What you have to do is say that they're telling the story as the story happened. The only reason in the world during this time period that women are the first ones to find, to find the empty tomb is because well, women were the first ones to find the empty tomb. They're telling the truth. But back to the story. So these two followers of Jesus are walking down the road and they're, they're not sure what to think and they're not sure who to believe anymore. They're hearing these fanciful reports that he's actually alive again, but they're heading home. It's time to get out of here. And now they have to relive all of this stuff with some nosy stranger who, has, who apparently has been living under a rock for the last weekend or so. So how should gentle and lowly Jesus respond when it's his turn to talk? Now that he's let them share their story, now that he's let them share their frustration and their misunderstanding, how should gentle and lowly, so sweet and calm Jesus respond to them? Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus calls them foolish. I didn't think Jesus did that. Foolish and slow of heart, which is another way of calling them obstinate, by the way. So, so why are they foolish and obstinate? Because they didn't believe what God had repeatedly told them over and over again throughout the scriptures. In verse 26, Jesus asks how they didn't understand that it was necessary for things to play out the way that they played out. Not just possible, not just, uh, uh, not just a possible way that it could have gone, but necessary that it played out exactly the way it played out. It promised to play out exactly this way. In other words, not only was Jesus' death and resurrection something that needed to happen in order for us to be reconciled to God, but God has been telegraphing that plan since the garden. It's always it was always going to happen that way. The death that was promised all the way back in Genesis 2 for sin. The death that was promised to Adam for his rejection and disobedience to, of God by the serpent's lies. The death that was passed down generation after generation after generation. And we don't have enough time to talk about how many generations. The death that was passed down over and over again through Adam's sin-broken lineage. God also promised that that death would not be the end of the story. He promised that there was one who was to come who would finally crush that serpent's head and undo all that was broken. And hear me, that includes death itself. Death is a foreign concept to God's creation. It is an unwanted visitor. And the one who was to come was going to kick him out. What, you think the Roman Empire is your biggest problem? Please. 
blip on the radar compared to what death has done in this world. The worst atrocities of the most wicked empires have used death for their purposes to do some of the most wicked stuff, but not a single one of those empires is needed for death to roll on. Whether you think times are terrible or you think times are great, the death that entered into the world with Adam's sin has continued to roll on unchallenged and unrestrained for all of human history. It was doing just fine before the worst empires got here. And it's still hanging out all the, after all those empires have faded into existence. Death touches us all without any power on our part to stop it or undo it except for you know that one time the son of god came and didn't stay dead kind of a gigantic deal and listen if that if that's true like if that's really true if jesus really did defeat our greatest enemy then that has a few implications for us as well namely this promise of a future resurrection for those that belong to jesus if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then those that belong to him have a down payment for our own resurrection hope. And that's what we read at the beginning of our time together, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, like, like if, if Jesus really did die from the dead, then we have a promise of resurrection too with him. And a disguised Jesus tells Cleopas and his buddy here that if they had only read their Bibles a little more carefully, they wouldn't be selling Israel's promised redeemer so short right now. If they hadn't been so slow to, to believe all that the prophets had spoken, they would never dare to think that Jesus' death at the hands of Rome would be the end of the story. Jesus starts by calling them foolish and obstinate, slow of heart, but he doesn't stay there. He immediately follows that up by gently walking them through the Old Testament, going, that's about Jesus? And that's about Jesus? <laughs> yeah, that was definitely about Jesus. All the way down the road to Emmaus. And so in verse 28, we see this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they, he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So they finally make it to their destination. Jesus is still playing it up, still, uh, uh, still walking them through this stuff without them knowing it's him. They, they, but they, he gets ready to go. He acts like he's going to go further. They're like, no, 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 you can't leave now. We're just getting into this stuff. They beg him to, to stay and to eat with them. And, and it's in the act of breaking the bread and praying for it that Jesus allows them to figure out who, it's, who he is. And, and in an instant, we're told that he's gone. As quickly as he appeared, 
Oh, did not our hearts burn within us? As he opened to us scriptures. In other words, by the time they made it to Emmaus, that, that shattered hope was reconstructed. It wasn't shattered anymore. Before Jesus allowed them to know it was him, they were already convinced that he came to do exactly what the prophets said he was going to come and do. And just as the crucifixion was necessary, so too was his resurrection. It was easy for them to believe. There were reports now, of course the tomb is empty. How else would it play out? What else should we expect from this? From the one who did what Jesus did? Of course. So what do we, what do you do in that moment, right? Like, if you're, if you're Cleopas and his unnamed friend, now that you've had this realization of, oh, we've been talking to the resurrected Jesus, what, what do you do with that? Well, you, they, you do what they did, right? They double-timed it back to Jerusalem because others needed to know. However long it took them to get that seven miles, they made it in a hurry. They found the 11, they told the story, and they rejoiced together that Jesus had done and is doing all the things he said he would do. The Lord has risen indeed. But that's what they did, right? How, how should we respond? Like, how, how can we respond to the incredible news of a resurrected Redeemer? How can we respond to the upside-down reality that this Messiah came not only to die, but also to rise uh, again? So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, listen, I think you can respond by meeting Jesus. That's a good route to run. Let's run that route. Your greatest need is not now, nor has it ever been some external enemy forced upon you. Your greatest problem is your own sin that separates you from a holy and perfect God. A righteous God. And the Bible teaches that you deserve the just punishment for that sin. It's called death. Just like Adam did. Just like I do. Just like we all do. Death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves you with a great love. And even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive in Christ by his grace. The reason why Jesus came and put on flesh, the reason why he dwelt among us and lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He came to die as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. And, oh, and he came to be raised again from the dead as the first fruits of our own resurrection. Both were necessary. And now is the king who conquered sin and, yes, death itself. He calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that in this very moment. I'd love to be helpful to you. You, you don't need me. Jesus doesn't need some mediator. He doesn't need some go-between. He is the go-between. He wants to give you himself. But I'd love to be helpful to you. Help you make sense of what that response of faith and repentance looks like. And so if you're in the room, I'll be down front here. If you're watching this online, you can use the contact form in the video description. Whatever you've got, I'll take it. If you're here this morning and you're 
already a follower of Jesus, I think our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the text, right? And this week, man, I think, I think Jesus is showing us that the Savior we often imagine him to be is actually far too small of a picture compared to who he really is. He's far bigger still. And the things we often wish he would save us from are far too cheap compared to what he actually came to give. I asked the question earlier, is what we're celebrating here this morning really worth all the pomp and circumstance? The answer is yeah. The answer is yes. The right response to the news that the Son of God lived and died and rose again ought to be nothing less than the biggest celebration we can throw at it. And God's goodness to us. He knows the feebleness of our frame. He knows the the fickleness of our hearts and our heads. And so he's given us this recurring date on the calendar that we can be reminded of these massive things. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. Because the one who came did far more than we expected and could ever comprehend. For the Lord is risen. Let's respond together in this moment. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Cleopas and some no-name guy whose hearts and heads look a lot more like mine than I'd like to confess. God, would you help me see that the things I often get frustrated with in this world are so small compared to what you've actually come to do. And the frustrations I have with you and the frustrations I have with myself are often the result of me forgetting what you've already done and are doing. Thank you for days like Easter, a Resurrection Sunday, so that we can be reminded that we follow a king who changed everything. who lived and died and rose again. Not only to wash away our sin, but to give us new life. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Show people your goodness and your grace. Draw all men and women into your kingdom this morning. Help us respond well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. And uh, let's, uh, let's close out with singing He Reigns. I promise I'll start in the right key this time. Uh, we, don't, we don't take ourselves seriously here. Though. We do take Jesus seriously, and it's really cool when uh, we get to gather together like this and sing together. Uh, and it's a, it's a little snap.